Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So our first reading is from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet claims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. The second reading is from Deuteronomy 34, and it's the whole chapter. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I, left you, I, I, have let, I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power of performed or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And the third reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put, your, put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Thank you very much, Izzy, for reading. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, my name's Simon, lead pastor here, and uh, it's lovely to have you here. As we wrap up today our series in Deuteronomy, I think this is week 11 um, of 11, uh, as we've looked together at the, uh, the, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I love Deuteronomy. I love the Old Testament. Um, I don't know if you've grown in your love for Deuteronomy over the past few months, or maybe just generally grown for your love for God's Word, Uh, but I do want you to turn to the person um, next to you and ask them, what do they love about the Old Testament? The Bible, if you don't know, is split into two halves in some ways. It's one big story, uh, but two halves. An Old Testament, that's the longer part of the Bible, the New Testament a bit shorter, um, but let's just focus on the Old Testament. Turn to the person, if you don't know what the Old Testament is, turn to the person really quickly and ask them, um, what do you love about the Old Testament? I'll give you a couple of minutes to talk about that with your neighbor. Go for it, go for it. All right. Get you to come back together. A um, couple of things up front if you did choose to close the app, your Bible app on your phone or close your Bible itself, you're good to open that up to uh, around to the Deuteronomy 31. That's where we're going to be as we track through the last little bit of Deuteronomy and then we'll jump into the, the New Testament as well. Um, also, yeah, we are starting our series next week, uh, an Advent series, so preparing our hearts and our minds, our bodies for Christmas. The silly season is upon us. I was in... Um, the city Friday morning, which I do with our youngest little guy, Fletcher, on my day off, and um, we just started taking photographs of all the Christmas trees that are popping up all over the place. It truly is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, um, as uh, it naturally would. And our series over the next sort of little while, um, as we build up to Christmas, is really just going to be looking at Jesus, uh, various aspects of Jesus, and just how wonderful he is, the fact that he has been promised from uh, day dot and, and what he brings to our lives and how he enriches our lives. That's what we're going to be thinking about as we lead up to Christmas. Um, it's going to be a good time together. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you for, for the air that we're breathing right now, the fact that you keep our hearts beating. Father, thank you for um, yeah, just giving us life And thank you that you've given us indeed life and life to the full in and through your son. And so we pray now as we look at your word and we sit under your word, help us, Father, to hear you speak to us. Father, address us as your people. Uh, Father, speak into our lives, refresh us, renew us, shape us to be more like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, as we do finish in this book of Deuteronomy, uh, Father, I pray that it would help us to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, and to love Jesus. Father, help us to leave here today by your Spirit, refreshed, renewed, 
more in love with the Lord as we leave than we did when we came. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what you shared about what you love about the Old Testament, uh, but one of the things I love about the Old Testament is just how it's so brutally honest about its main characters and their flaws, foibles, and failures. It is remarkable. Um, The Old Testament is just so down on its stars and its key characters. It's down on Israel as a nation. It's down on the King David. It's down on Moses. It's down on Aaron. It's down on on you name it. A couple of thoughts here. I might have shared this before, but the Old Testament, um, in my opinion, is like a, a critical autobiography. Um, Anyone read a critical autobiography before uh, where the person is kind of just a little bit down on themselves in the the autobiography? Um, Critical autobiographies written by third parties are pretty common where someone doesn't like someone very much and so they write sort of a fairly kind of lucid life story of someone. But a critical autobiography is something different altogether. Very, very rarely are people critical of themselves in the public square. And when they do, it's, I think it really stands out. Um, I have shared this before. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. I haven't read all of his books, but Tim Winton. Everyone know Tim Winton? Anyone know Tim Winton? Uh, Australian author, uh, written some wonderful books, Cloud Street. I think I read that when I was in year 12 um, or something like that. A, a really good book. Uh, great author. Uh, but one day he was interviewed by Jennifer Byrne on ABC TV. Um, I don't just listen to old person's radio. I kind of watch old person's TV as well. But ABC, um, watching Jennifer Byrne, interviewed Tim Winton. Uh, it was about his literary writing and his history and things like that. And, and you know, if you know Tim at all, like he's, he's quite a famous author. He's probably made a fair bit of money, so on and so forth. And Jennifer, at one stage, asked him whether the fame and the fortune that he's gained through his writing has kind of like affected him, changed him. And the answer that he gave kind of shocked her. He said this, actually, it really worries me how my elevation has almost dulled me to the experience of the ordinary person. Jennifer, when you watch the interview, was quite taken aback by that. Um, She doesn't get comments like that normally. Um, Normally you hear people say, you know, famous people say, oh, yes, I know that I'm rich and famous, but I'm just like the ordinary person. Tim said, I'm not, and it frightened him. A bit more recently, on Friday night, I was in the city and I went to a dinner with Adele, my wife. Uh, It was the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatry annual dinner for the South Australian branch. Now, just picture this. You know when you go to those dinners where you kind of don't know many people and it's all people crammed into one room at a function centre and you get put on a table of people you've never met before? Um, I'm not one of those people who enjoys that experience very much um, because you've got to make that small talk. Well, imagine doing that but with a room 80% full of psychiatrists. (laughs) Intimidating. They're all working. No, it wasn't actually, it wasn't that bad. Um, But it was really interesting. On the night, moved beyond the the fact that I'm surrounded by psychiatrists. So I was there and and part of the evening, it's an annual dinner, end of the year, and there's some good food and some bit of dancing and things like that. But one of the reasons for gathering is to recognise 
members of the fellowship who've contributed greatly to the fellowship over a period of time. They recognise members who've been there for 20 or 30 years. And they also give an award to someone, I forget the name of the award, to someone who's like contributed significantly uh, to the work of psychiatry, um, mental health, um, in South Australia over a long period of time. Um, the gentleman who received the award this year was a guy named Dr. Will Go. Um, he is an Asian man of short stature. There you go. Um, he's not a very tall man. Um, that was what the person from the front actually said before we even got to meet this guy. Um, and he was invited to the stage um, after someone had given a speech about him where you would just go, this guy is incredible, right? Like, absolutely amazing. Anyway, Will Go made it to the stage supported by his uh, daughter and Will got up the front, fairly frail man, um, already struggling with some dementia, to give his acceptance speech. And one of the things I loved about him, he goes, he said, he's, one of his opening lines was, I've spent my whole life listening, I'm not very good at talking. That was his preface for his address. And it was a wonderful little speech actually, and, and he was assisted with, by his daughter who had to basically help him read out his whole speech because of his mental capacity and the dementia that's already infecting him. And he was very upfront about that. But one of the things I loved about him, he was just authentic. He was just real. And what we saw was authentic and real. He wasn't pretending to be anything but himself. And he wasn't lavishing praise. He wouldn't want the praise. He was just sharing his vulnerabilities and what he'd been able to do to contribute to the life of psychiatry and the bettering the mental health of men and women in our state. Um, two people, Tim Winson, famous, fortune, fears that he is becoming detached from ordinary people. He doesn't like that. And Dr. William Goh, a man who's contributed much, but he's clearly just, he was just a vulnerable man. There is this authenticity about the Old Testament that I really love. And for me, when I read the Old Testament, it is just so different to all the other histories that we have available to us of contemporary times. The authenticity in the Old Testament is just nothing like Egyptian history, nothing like Babylonian history, Greek history, Roman history. Sure, in those histories that we read, we, we do come across people who've done a few dodgy things, but largely the history is just about how wonderful these nations are and how they just rose to prominence and took over the world, but not with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is constantly down on its heroes and how sinful they are. Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, all of them. Now, Israel knew they were a chosen people. The first promise that God made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, said, you're going to be a blessed nation and that they would be key to the blessing of the whole world. That's the first promise that God made to Abraham. But from that kind of glorious moment onwards, the Old Testament is basically a story about how the only thing going for Israel is that God loves them. That's the story. And I think it's basically a summary of the whole of the Old Testament. The only thing going for God's people is that he loves them. Constantly there's this description of failure, even of the heroes. Kind of a William Go, Tim Winton-esque authenticity. 
So as we work our way through the last little bit of Deuteronomy and then jump into the New Testament, we are going to do just, just two big points. The sinfulness of everyone, the sinfulness of everyone, and how it kind of all just points to Jesus. That's what we're going to talk out today. Sinfulness of everyone. If you've been tracking through us, uh, with us through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll know that Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, it is the fifth book of the Torah. Uh, so we've got Genesis is the first book, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, the Torah is those first five books of the Bible. And we've been in Deuteronomy, this, this last book of the first five books for the last 11 or so weeks. And basically Deuteronomy is... I don't know, some people say one long sermon by Moses or three sort of individual sermons uh, that he's given on the plains of Moab, on the edge of the promised land, with this new generation of Israel poised to enter the promised land. And Moses, through three speeches or one long sermon, is pleading with this new generation of Israelites to trust the Lord. Uh, to, to live for him, to obey his commands. And so as they enter the land, be blessed by God and be a blessing to the nations around them. The former generation of Israelites, the first people that the Lord chose, they've died out in the wilderness. And now the new generation stands poised to take the promised land. And Moses pleads with them, choose the Lord, choose life. Live for God. And we come to these final chapters of Deuteronomy, which I hope you have open in front of you, which seems to be written, I think, to underline our first point this morning, the sinfulness of everyone. Sinfulness of everyone, how everyone kind of just dashes our hopes. And you're like, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Blah. Everyone dashes our hopes. Israel dashes our hopes. Moses dashes our hopes. Aaron dashes our hopes. Joshua dashes our hopes. Can anyone fulfill God's wishes? Well, come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. And you have this kind of climactic statement about the sinfulness of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses... You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Great. Isn't that wonderful? Moses, you're going to die, and everyone's going to blow it, is basically the gist. Now, we're kind of used to this theme, right? All the way through the Old Testament so far, all the way through Deuteronomy. Israel, the nation, the people of God, disobeying God. But surely Moses, right, the great lawgiver, the great leader of Israel, surely he can achieve God's purposes. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 48. Moses is given this amazing song to sing. And then we have a look at this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up uh, into the um, Abiram Ridge to Mount Nebo in Moab, across the Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. 
This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. That's not good news, is it, really? This story is not made up. If you are making up this story, there is no way that you're going to have the great hero, the great leader, the great lawgiver miss out on entering the promised land because he is a sinner. The the fact that the word of God is so kind of authentic and real about even its heroes is one of the things that makes me go, "This this is trustworthy. This is not made up. Okay, so not Israel, they won't fulfill God's purposes. Not Moses, he won't fulfill them. But surely Moses' successor, Joshua, surely he will be the one who will fulfill all of God's purposes. Well, it looks promising in the final chapter of Deuteronomy, if you listen, doesn't it? Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 8. Deuteronomy verse 34, chapter 34, verse 8. Moses has died. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Verse 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Excellent. Like, this is really promising. It might be that Joshua is the prophet like Moses that God would raise up. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses says, you have to wait for a prophet like me. Key phrase, prophet like me. Deuteronomy 34, verses 8 to 9. Joshua kind of looks like that prophet. But I think the final chapter of Deuteronomy is kind of deliberately, I don't know, messing with our heads. If that's where it ended, you'd say, oh, the promise is going to come true in Joshua. Sure, Israel failed, Moses failed, Aaron failed, but not Joshua. But then have a look at Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This phrase, we're expecting the prophet like Moses, is deliberately picked up with a negative placed in the front of it. Since then, no prophet like Moses has arisen. Great. Israel, rescued from slavery and oppression in Egypt, doesn't fulfill God's purposes. Moses, rescued from slavery in Egypt, doesn't fulfill God's wishes. Aaron, rescued from Egypt, doesn't fulfill God's wishes. Joshua even, the successor of Moses, will not be the prophet like Moses. And this is what the final lines of Deuteronomy say. These final lines of Deuteronomy are like a signpost. The book of Deuteronomy ends by saying, the answer, friends, is not here. It's elsewhere. The whole book of Deuteronomy, actually the whole Old Testament itself, is like a a whole setup to say the promises of God will be fulfilled elsewhere. It's a signpost to the new covenant, to a new Moses, to a new mountain, a new law that we have to wait for.
These, the whole Old Testament just sort of underlines that the sinfulness of everyone and that our hope lies in someone else, somewhere else. And that's where we flick to the second point this morning. It all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to Jesus. Flick forward with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, the second reading we, or the third reading we had. We come to the New Testament, right? And of course, if you're a, a bit of a Bible reader, you'll know um, Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter, one of the apostles, um, says explicitly that the one we were hoping for, a prophet like Moses, is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, look up Acts chapter 3 later and you'll see that. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 in this wonderful speech, Acts 3. He says that Jesus the Messiah is the prophet like Moses. That's really simple, right? Too simple for you on a Sunday morning. We get tons of this stuff. The New Testament saying that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and that prophecy and that category. But what we see is that all that Israel existed for would come true in Jesus. The blessings of Israel only come true in Jesus that the conveying of the blessings to all nations comes through Jesus. It all comes down to Jesus. And perhaps nowhere clearer than that, which we read in, in, that, second, in that third Bible reading, Matthew 4. I, I'd love you to have open in front of you Matthew chapter 4 right now. Matthew chapter 4. The whole of Matthew's gospel tells of how Jesus fulfills the story and the mission of Israel so that the blessings of Israel can go to all the nations. That's basically Matthew in a nutshell. Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills the story and the mission of Israel. In one sentence, right? Jesus fulfills the story and mission of Israel so that the blessings of Israel can go to the nations. If I had more time, which I don't this morning, I'd love to show you how Matthew introduces this theme in chapter one, builds it in chapter two, and again in chapter three, but we're just going to land in chapter 4, where it's absolutely explicit. Matthew tells us that Jesus embarks on a 40-day trial in the desert. Everyone who knew the story of Israel knew that sounds suspiciously like a 40-year period of trial for God's people in the desert for Israel. Jesus goes into the desert for a 40-day temptation. And Israel's temptations in the desert find echoes in Jesus' temptations in the desert. And all the quotations that Jesus relies on in his temptation come from where? Deuteronomy. From passages where Moses reminds Israel of their sin, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. Now to anyone acquainted with Israel's story, Matthew 4 provides a powerful picture of Jesus reenacting Israel's past. That's what Matthew 4 is all about. Have a look with me at the first temptation of Jesus. The first temptation of Jesus is to not trust God's provision. So have a look with me at chapter, one, chapter 4 of Matthew and verses 1 to 4. The, tempta the tempter comes to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights where Jesus is really hungry and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Temptation? To grumble at the provision of God and so call on some miraculous power to get more food. 
Jesus answered, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lines straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 to 3, where Moses rebukes Israel for grumbling at God's provision. What's the point? Where Israel failed, Jesus prevails. Second temptation of Jesus, to put the Lord God to the test. Now this is verses four and five. So the devil takes Jesus to a high place and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, even the devil quotes the Bible, by the way. Um, He says, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But have a look what Jesus says, Deuteronomy, uh, Matthew chapter four, verse seven. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord God to the test. Words straight out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, where Moses reminds Israel that they did put the Lord God to the test when they were in the desert. They demanded more signs from God, right? God had rescued them from slavery and oppression in Israel through mighty acts of salvation. But we want more signs, they said. They put him to the test. But here's the point. Jesus is faithful when Israel is unfaithful. He does what Deuteronomy says Israel didn't. And the third temptation recalls Israel's greatest sin in the desert. Do you know what Israel's greatest sin in the desert was? To worship foreign gods. To build the golden calf. Temptation number three, to worship a false god. Jesus is tempted in his 40-day trial to worship a false god. You can see the devil again takes him to a high place. He sees all the kingdoms of the world in all of their splendor and grandeur. And he says, all of this I will give to you if you would just bow down to me. And Jesus said to the devil in verse 10, chapter 4 of Matthew, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Words that come straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, where Moses rebukes Israel for having worshipped other gods and pleads with them not to worship those gods. And he uses exactly the same words that Jesus centuries later will quote successfully. My point again, Jesus prevailed where Israel failed. Now for Matthew's readers, right, if not for us, this is evocative stuff. This is exciting. Because this means that Jesus is reenacting Israel's life and history and yet pulls it off successfully. Israel was called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and to love their neighbour as themselves. That was their chief responsibility as God's people. And here is Jesus pulling it off successfully. Jesus endures these series of temptations and trials in the desert just like Israel. And Jesus obeys God in exactly the ways that Israel failed God. Now, if we had time, I'd love to take you through all of Matthew's gospel and show you how this is the dominant theme throughout Matthew's gospel. 
In section after section after section after section, Jesus is fulfilling, he's reenacting and then fulfilling Israel's whole life. Uh, let me give you a quick example. If you turn to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what do you see there? Well, we see a new law given by a new lawgiver on a new mountain. Yeah? Jesus is deliberately cast as the new Moses with a new law establishing a new covenant. It's wonderful. Let's go through all of Matthew's gospel together, right? So um, I'd love to show you as well, right, how Jesus' selection of 12 apostles or disciples is deliberately described in Matthew like a reset button on the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel started with 12 patriarchs. When they got into the land, the land was divided into 12 regions. So each tribe got a section of the land. What were those people? Like God's people were called to live in that land and be a light to the nations and the nations were drawn to love the Lord, their God. They started with 12 patriarchs. Jesus starts his mission to reach the nations with 12 apostles. Um, just an aside, these are dangerous, right? When I start going off tangent. Uh, one of the, when I started here as a pastor for City Light Church North Adelaide, um, I've always found our church name a little bit of a mouthful. You know, when, you, you know, when someone says, oh, what church do you go to? I go to City Light Church North Adelaide. Wow. You know, I don't know if you, I often go City Light North or City Light North Adelaide, or whatever it is, right? It's a mouthful. I, I've, you know, sometimes in my moments of like, that's too long, I think about other names for our church. And I love the number 12. So right now I'm thinking we should just be called 12 Church. You can talk to me about it later. Um, I'm thinking anyone with a marketing background would go, no, don't go there. Anyway, I love the number 12 because right here, right, it just comes up all the way, 12 tribes. And then Jesus pressed the reset button and says, no longer am I going to bless the world through 12 tribes of Israel. I'm going to bless the world through these 12 shabby disciples who are going to take the gospel to the nations. Reset button for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd love, I'd love to show you how the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus is deliberately described as Jesus bearing the sin and the curses attached to that sin of the law of Moses so that we might be forgiven through faith in him. I'd love for us to dwell a little bit longer on the final paragraph of Matthew's gospel where Jesus sends out his new Israel to make disciples of all nations, which every ancient Jew new must mean that the promise of Abraham is coming true. That Israel was chosen to bless all nations, the fulfillment of Genesis 12 verse 3. Now Jesus' story ends, having reenacted Israel's whole life, but successfully and beautifully and perfectly pulling it off. And then he sends out his people to be a blessing to all nations. The logic of all of this is that the story of Israel is fulfilled in the story of Israel's Messiah so that the blessings of Israel can go to all the nations. That's what the book of Deuteronomy points to like a signpost. That's what the gospel of the Lord Jesus is all about.
I hope this doesn't just seem like all sort of theological stuff. Because it's all there in the text. And if it's there in the text, then the Lord wants us to see it. Because this is good for us. And I think as I kind of maybe draw things to a close this morning, and our time in Deuteronomy to a close, I think there are four four applications or, I don't know, implications of all of this for us as we sit here today and then go out into the world as God's people this week. I think there are four implications how this material can shape us and assure us and strengthen us and empower us to be representatives of the Lord Jesus wherever we find ourselves this coming week. Four things. And here they are. First one is relax. Relax. Can I just get everyone to sort of take a big deep breath, suck it in, and then just let it out. Relax. We're not here actually to do sort of meditation, by the way. Relax. Jesus prevailed where we all fail. Relax. I. I noticed that yesterday, um, one of the brothers in our church, Simon Danucci, posted up on one of our channels on Slack, uh, just a word of encouragement. He, he sort of said, there's a, he's just felt like he's been talking to a lot of people and a few people have said how the, a bunch of us are struggling to do the Christian life, having a hard time. And it was, his reminder was to just, well, he didn't use these words, but relax. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid for your sin, past, present and future, if you trust in him. The work, the initial work of becoming a Christian is the great unwork of coming to Jesus with empty hands and saying, I can't pull this off, but I know there is one who has pulled it off, who has satisfied the just demands of God and his name is Jesus and I'm just going to throw myself onto him. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in the Christian life, can I, just, can I encourage you and implore you, relax. Trust in the Lord Jesus. I've been reading for my own sort of personal growth, I guess, and devotion over the past nine months or so, uh, the pastoral epistles of Titus and First and Second Timothy, and reminded just during the last week, uh, in just going back through some things that I've been learning, First Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, where the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, this youngish pastor, a little bit like me, but a long time ago in the first century, leading a church which is a mess like me. No, no, I'm just joking. But he writes to Timothy and he says, here is a trustworthy saying deserving of your full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's a reminder for Timothy to remember that he himself is a sinner 
and therefore always to just throw himself back on the grace and mercy of God. But it's also a reminder, brothers and sisters, that our sin is off the scale. But it's a reminder that God's mercy is off the charts. Relax. May sin never surprise us. The only only thing going for God's people is that he loves them. So relax. Before I get to the second implication, you know what I do? Like, you know when I preach and then during the last song I run off? It's not because I don't like the last song we sing every week. It's just that I like to be out at the back door um, and, and meet people as they run away really quickly so I can catch you. No. Um, but you know, one thing I hear regularly um, from you, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, is a lot of people say to me, you know, oh, they like, come past and they'll say, oh, Jacko, thanks for preaching today. I felt really challenged. And, and like, part of me is like, yes, I made them feel uncomfortable. You know, I made them step up and have to do more. But I'm not sure that's the, actually the greatest measure of a good message. One of the things I would love to hear more of, and maybe this is what I need to change in the way that I teach the Bible a little bit, is I'd love for people to come up and say, do you know what, Jacko, thank you for reminding me of the gospel. Thank you that I know that simply through trusting in Jesus, I am assured of salvation and life forever with him. I'm not putting words into your mouth, by the way. Don't do that today. Oh, thanks for assuring me. But I just want you brothers and sisters to know that Jesus has done it all. And if you trust in him, you are safe and secure. You are in his grip. And he will never let you go. So relax. I promise the next three are quicker, by the way. Relax. Second, maybe sounds a bit obscure. A bit strange in relation to the first one. But the second one is, so first one, relax. Second, obey. Obey. Jesus is the new Moses. And his teaching is our new law. The cross is the great sign of God's love for his world. Jesus' teaching is the great law of love. Never forget the one thing that I feel like we've kind of rammed home through this series and through other series in the New Testament is that God rescues his people first. Grace is the premise of the law. Christ is the promise of the law. We're saved by faith, by grace through faith, from sin and death. And then as God's redeemed people, we're then called to live for him, be his ambassadors in the world. But don't ever forget the order. We don't earn salvation. We receive our salvation. And then we're called to live for Jesus, love like Jesus, according to his word. I love this. I've shared this in the past from a book called The Pastor is Public Theologian by a guy named Kevin Van Hooser. It's a great name. He writes this. Being in Christ is both gift and task, privilege and responsibility. Exaggerate the gift and you risk complacency. Exaggerate the responsibility and you risk legalistic anxiety. 
We're saved by grace to now live for a new master, empowered by the Spirit. Relax, obey. Thirdly, a bit weird, read. Relax, obey, read. We're called to read the Bible as one text. There's no such thing as a New Testament Christian. There are just Bible Christians. The whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation, climaxing in the cross, the work of the Lord Jesus. Read. Two covenants. Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, seemingly kind of in seamlessly connected. The reality is, right, brothers and sisters, we dishonour God, the author of the Word, by not seeing it as one big book and, and giving the Bible deep thought. We must study the Bible as one text. And if we don't, we, we sort of just, we won't fully grasp it, right? We will never fully grasp the word of God before we see Jesus and enjoy him forever. But I want to encourage us to be whole Bible readers. I've used this illustration before. You know, if you go to a party and you're running a bit late and you kind of see your friends there. So I walk into a party, and, which is not very often, but I walk into a party and I see Delph and Tran having a chat with Renee and Naomi and they're having a wow of a time, this great conversation. And I just walk up, you know, as I do, looking cool. I walk up and, you know, within like 20 seconds, they're all laughing and carrying on at the punchline of the story that was being told. And I kind of join in and they look at me and go, why are you laughing? You weren't here for the first bit. You know, if you, if you turn up at a party, you know, we have to have the whole conversation in order to understand the whole thing. You miss out on the first part of the story, you won't understand the punchline. It's like if we jettison the Old Testament, we won't fully grasp what Jesus has come to do and say and achieve. So read, relax, obey, read, and fourthly, convey. Convey. From Abraham to the apostles, to those of us saved through the blood of Jesus today, God blesses his people so that they would be a blessing to everyone. Christianity is inherently missionary. The biblical God is a missionary God and a biblical church is a missionary church. We are called as God's people, as we live for him in this world, to be a blessing to all of those around us in word and in deed. God is a missionary God. We are to be a missionary people sent to the ends of the earth. So brothers and sisters, this morning as we wrap up our time in Deuteronomy, relax. Jesus has done it all. Obey. Let's live out who we are as God's people. Read the whole Bible and convey that we would be a blessing to everyone. Relax, obey, read, convey. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the way that your word tells this wonderful, unraveling story of salvation. 
Father, we thank you for the way that you created us and you created this world and it's very good. But we turned our back on you, Father, and things went pear-shaped. But thank you that in the midst of those curses, you promised to send one born of a woman to bring an end to evil once and for all. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time in the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, Father, for the way that it reminds us of your grace and how it points us to the gospel. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he fulfilled everything that was necessary to satisfy you and to deal with our sin. Father, may we be found in Jesus this day. And Father, help us indeed to rest in Christ, to listen to his words and by the power of the Holy Spirit to do those words. Father, help us to be men and women who read your word. And Father, help us to be people who convey the wonderful truth of the gospel in word and deed to those around us, that they too may experience the blessing of knowing you, of knowing forgiveness and knowing the hope of eternal life. And so, Father, we give you thanks for the assurance of salvation we have in your Son. Help us to keep trusting Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.